Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Quentin Tarantino's new crime drama, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Set in Los Angeles during the waning years of Hollywood's golden age, the film weaves together multiple storylines, following fading television actor Rick Dalton, his stunt double Cliff Booth, and his neighbor Sharon Tate during the months leading up to one fateful night in August 1969. In addition to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Mr. Tarantino's credits include the feature films The Hateful Eight, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2, Death Proof, Django Unchained, and episodes of the television series ER and CSI. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film and the Academy Award for Best Director for 1994's Pulp Fiction and 2009's Inglorious Bastards. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Tarantino spoke with director Paul Thomas Anderson about filming Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. During their conversation, he talks about working with stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie, realizing the film's major sequence set at the real-life Spahn Ranch, and dealing with the audience's knowledge of Sharon Tate's murder as the film's dramatic engine. Oh, yeah, you guys are a good audience. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, Quentin. Hello. Um, this is the most magnificent film. Um, I have seen it for, I think, four and a half times now. Um, and I have so much to ask you. I'm sure everybody does. But first, I just, I, just to tell you, I think I've told you before, but one of the things I love about this movie is how much joy there is in it. Just pure joy. Um, and your movies always have the joy of, of making the movie, and they're, they're always filled with that. But there's something else going on here in this movie that you haven't had before. Um, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's like the world's expert made a movie about <laughs> the thing he knows most about, which is the movies, this city, and the humanity of it. It's oh, so beautiful. Oh, actually, I was, I, I, you know, it's funny that you're saying that. I mean, there was, like, uh, uh, I mean, you're saying something nice. Um, of course, I'm agreeing with it, but I mean, uh, um, <laughs> Uh, but no, but there is this weird aspect when I was kind of writing the movie after I kind of figured out a, a couple things and I was kind of really flowing on it. Um, you know, I just spent my whole life putting all this junk into my head. And so when I had to think about what Rick's career would be or almost any moment of who he could have worked with or mm-hmm. what or a, a parallel career that could have been like mm-hmm. his or a situation like that or any of these things anybody these dudes would have known mm-hmm. or come across. And same thing with Sharon, that it was just like, I mean, it was just right there. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have to look up shit. Right. It was just right there. And it was like, wow, I'd spent my whole life putting this stuff in my head, maybe just for this movie. <laughs> right. That's right. Because <laughs> at a certain point, it was like after like with IMDb came, I go, man, I spent my whole life knowing this shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now any jerk in the world, all right, well, why didn't you bring up that Galen Ross was in blah, 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 you know? 
<laughs> but there's only one person that can make that fucking movie. <laughs> um, okay, I wanna. I'll start. At, I'll start at the back, and maybe you've been asked this before. But at what point did you discover your ending, or did you know it when you started? Did you know what your what your end zone was, or did you find it along the way? Uh, it's not been asked as a direct question okay. like that. Uh, um, yeah, here's yeah, here's the thing. When it came to, um, I definitely had a, you know a, like the first thing I had the Cliff character, yeah. the stuntman character, and then I, and then I knew it was going to be with a, um, uh, a '50s, early '60s. Mm-hmm. A Western star actor, so I hadn't figured out exactly who that guy was, but I mean, he's one of like six or seven dudes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had the idea of them, not the story, not mm-hmm. anything like that. And so, okay, so I had those two guys, and I knew I was going to put, you know, and then, and I kind of knew I was going to put them right next to Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so then Lily officially the first story thing I came up with was the end. <laughs> Uh-huh. Everything else was working backwards. To, uh, uh, it's the only time I've ever done that. I've never just come up with an end. Right. And then came up with a whole story to justify the ending. Fantastic. Um, okay. But, so then backing up a little bit from that, when did you find that portion of how the film has ended up, which is basically it's a day in the life. Yeah. Yes, there's this kind of chunk that, that we leap towards and we take. Um, but how much did you, were you sort of figuring out what the hell is this and then kind of happen upon, because this is a day in the life movie well, is the way that you were going to tell it. Well, it's fun because it's like, I mean, look, um, you know, normally I, I kind of write my, my scripts as if they're kind of novels anyway, but this one was really that way because I, I kept working on it for years and just kept putting it away. Right. And, um, and I just kind of put the rock, push the rock up the hill a little bit further every, in between each, each project. And, um. The benefit of that was I was able to explore a zillion different things about all the things that could happen to Rick and could happen to Cliff. And trust me, a lot of shit has happened in their life that I didn't get around to show you. If I ever, you know, just Cliff in the war. Okay, that's all that, I mean, that's that's five movies. Right, right. Cliff in World War II, that's five movies. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I started even thinking today, well, why didn't he get back from Italy? Why doesn't Rick play Cliff in a fucking movie about <laughs> World War II? <laughs> good. Yeah, that, I see that. That'd be a cool thing. Combat Cliff. All right. Um, uh, uh, but the thing is, though, I ended up, uh, um, you know, but because of that, so I, I figured out all these things about the character and kind of really got to know them. And then at a certain point when I was kind of ready to go, it was like, okay, well, now, Quentin, okay, now hold on for a second now. You're the master here. What um, what story do you want to tell? Mm-hmm. You know the guys. You know the milieu. Mm-hmm. You know the entire environment. And you know your ending. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to tell? And I was like, I don't think I really want to put them through some melodramatic plot. I mean, I had come up with a couple of things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if, if I was to make it more of a movie plot, mm-hmm. it would you know it wouldn't be a movie movie plot. It would be more like an Elmer Leonard novel. And these guys almost seem like Elmer Leonard characters, mm-hmm. almost, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would be kind of an Elmer Leonardy kind of thing, and you know, maybe the uh, the family would have been a little bit more involved. Right. Um, but then I thought about it, and I go, No, I think I just want to do a day in the life. 
I think the characters are strong enough to hold it. I think the characters are strong enough to hold it. And it, it, it all comes down to that. If the characters weren't strong enough to hold it, then then it wouldn't work. Right. But I think the character's strong enough to hold it. I think the milieu is strong enough to hold it. I think the environment and the minutiae is strong enough to hold it. And even coming from the idea of, of it, I mean, it is a genre film because it's a movie about making movies and that's its own genre. But when most people think of genre when it comes to me, they're thinking of action genre of some right. type. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that. Mm-hmm. It takes place in a real world where, like, you know, just regular things, all right, happen, regular days happen. Yet, it's punctuated with these action scenes from Rick's movies. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I always I always thought that that was a thing. Well, I'm kind of giving you action scenes. They're just, you know, isolated, and they're all these different genres. And, and um, right. it's kind of the idea that actually Richard Rush had with the stuntman about doing a mm-hmm. comic paranoid study, a study of a, co- a black comedy about paranoia. Right. All right, but he could commit to it 100% because he had all those big action scenes for his World War I movie did seem like World War One was all happening around that hotel. All right, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought I could open it up a little Del bit. Coronado Hotel. Yeah, yeah, like the entire World War would just move out of the hotel right. and World War One's over. All right. Uh, but uh, uh, but the idea behind that I thought was really interesting. So I thought I could, I could pull that off. And then the idea was if these characters are strong enough, they can hold it. I can do a day in the life. But also, and this was... This was the tricky part, um, is we know about Sharon's murder. Mm-hmm. So that's going to happen. Whether I show it or not, it's going to happen. Even if I sh- stop in February, even if I ended the movie August 7th, mm-hmm. all right, that's going to happen. And most of the audience members are going to know that. And so that can act as a dramatic motor mm-hmm. because you know it's going, you know the shoe this horrible shoe will drop. And every scene in the movie is taking you closer to that shoe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but now, but that's a weird thing, all right? That's like, I gotta pull that off. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could actually, that could, one, it could not work, or it could work and maybe it's in bad taste, or maybe you don't earn it, all right? Or maybe it's just fucking creepy, you know? uh, uh, Now, that was interesting to tr- to try to write that though. Now, if I felt that that was the case, if it felt exploitive, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't mind risking that. I wanted to try that. I wanted to try this chancy material. You know, and I had a few examples. I had a few other like you know uh, presidents of that. I mean, to some degree, uh, uh, um, you know, um, uh, to some degree, Zodiac kind of plays uh, uh, mm-hmm. plays similar games. Hell, for some degree. The Titanic plays similar games. You know, the fucking uh, ship's going to hit the iceberg and all these real people are going to fucking die. Right. You know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he kind of playing the same game I am, you know, like you start getting into the movie and getting in the characters and now you don't want mm-hmm. the ship to hit the iceberg. Um, so that was, that was the plan. Right. Um, working backwards a little bit still, um, there's a great, I was kind of reminded of um, when I, I read the Cormac McCarthy's book, No Country for Old Men. Um, Cormac McCarthy's the kind of writer where there's a moment where he just takes care of some fucking detail that you think, I never would have remembered that. And there's a moment where he takes care of a horse that's dying. He just goes over to take care of it. And I remember thinking that fucking Quentin took care of the neon signs, you know, <laughs> in LA. Like, you stopped a minute to even take care of that, which living in this city, um, it's such a beautiful moment when that happens. 
um, when the sun's just going down and the sun's and it's come on and that the stones out of time is playing yeah. and I leaned over to you now and I was just like it just breaks my fucking heart mm-hmm. absolutely breaks my heart because you feel that inevitable coming you, that song is playing um, and you said that had been rummaging around with you for a while that song kind of looking for a home no 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 not, not that song looking for a home that 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 idea of that montage I, I mean like, like I for, for years for years that exact montage all right yeah. you know with the 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 neon going on and ending with uh, el coyote right. and the sadness of them pulling up to el coyote and everything yeah and, and i don't really like to use songs that are right on the money so i was almost even questioning is that too on the money you know uh, um and then you know and it, it's but it's it, no. it's it's sadness it, it, it's sadness yeah. earned it Absolutely. it's it's both it's weird it's weird egalic timing and the sadness involved in it yeah no it's quite beautiful um okay so go back now let's go into um the spawn ranch sequence um which is so unbelievably done um it's so long and not i'm not saying long in a bad way i'm saying it continues on and it keeps pulling the string and it takes you places that you do not expect i mean certainly in in bruce dern as responds reaction and that dialogue between them that is just like two great actors it's with, really great to watch those guys together i mean damn they're both so great in that um take will you can you kind of play through a little bit of how you map that sequence out because it doesn't seem like you could have just gotten there for that one and put the pieces together the sunlight is always low uh, it feels you mean, like you mean uh, yeah you don't mean writing you mean directing i right? mean directing yeah yeah which, right, and your scripts usually are, yeah. are very written out very specifically, but that one seems, I mean, we're at the DJ, well, the fake DJ. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that makes it, no, that makes it, no, that makes it, no. <laughs> no, what you're saying makes sense. I mean, yeah, um, uh, even the dogs the- are fucking directed. I mean, talk yeah, yeah, about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was one of those, well, actually, that might be a good way to start it off because the thing is, um, uh, there's this really great story about um, Francis Ford Coppola doing, um, uh, all the whole Robert Duvall sequences in um, Apocalypse Now. And, you know, they're using the, the helicopters to the Filipino airport and he's paying for everything himself and this just all the incredible pressures of trying to do this. It's almost unimaginable. And, but he, him and Victoria Storaro come up with, with realized much to his horrible chagrin because he needs to get footage shot. Much to his horrible chagrin that, um, if the helicopters aren't in the background, it just doesn't work. It's just dead. There's, you, you can't have just the helicopters a little bit. After you've established the helicopters, the helicopters have to be flying in the air behind every single solitary shot. Okay, no, I didn't quite have as much of a problem as Francis Ford Coppola did, but I did tell the people, I go, look, if there's any shot in Spawn Ranch, I need to have a dog in the background. I mean, there's not, there can never be a shot that I don't see a dog doing something, because <laughs> that was kind of what it was like. They had a lot of dogs there, you know, and... Uh, 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 and uh, and that means that means the place is alive. Yeah. That means it's living. That means it's crawling. That means it's got fleas. You know. Uh, and that means it's scrounging. And it's just there, it's there's a movement. There's always movement going on. The place is alive. And it's uh, uh and the, there's always you know, some living thing running from one pile of trash <laughs> to another. Right. In the background, just just keep it going. The the thing about directing that well, it was just it was one of those like hard sequences where like you. Um, you realize, okay, well, this is kind of one of the cornerstones of the movie. And in this movie, 
more than most because part of the thing is kind of doing a non-story movie for mm-hmm. most of it. And the closest thing to a story is when he goes to Spawn Ranch. Uh, there yeah. is that aspect when you're watching the movie, oh, shit, we've been like heading here the entire time. I didn't realize it until now here we are. And, uh, oh, actually, maybe the story, maybe, maybe the movie had a story. <laughs> it's about getting him here. Um, and so, it, look, it worked. I had a terrific group of actors, uh, and I had a, uh, it worked really good on the page. So now it's mine to fuck up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's almost so big. How do you even start that? Yeah. And so we just shot it in, uh, I, I, I gave myself two weeks. I gave myself two weeks to shoot there completely un, un, uninterrupted and then a little bit of leeway if I needed maybe even as much up to four days if right. I had to. Right. All right. Um, and I figured that I figured that would be enough. I didn't think if that was too much, but I figured that would be just that would be enough. And I tried not to use those four days. But the point being, though, was to not really work out anything. Mm-hmm. The point was I had I had a I had maybe one of the best sets I've ever had in my life. I mean, the, I thought she, Barbara Ling and Nancy Hyatt did uh, just a fantastic job with Spawn Ranch, and it looked so amazing. I couldn't believe it. Um, the whole movie. I mean, the whole yeah. movie. But that place yeah. just was, seemed like, I mean, it was it was eerie creepy about how, how great it was. And, the, and then the actors were fantastic, and I've never had a group of actors. I didn't really use, work with young people that much. I never worked with a group of young actors. Where I didn't almost have, I mean, all that body language that they had, I didn't have to teach them fucking shit. You know, they just knew all that Spawn Ranch. They knew all that Manson stuff, that family stuff. They all worked all that stuff out together, and they just, boom, it was just right there. And um, so then it was literally, we just put the camera on the crane and just keep inventing the shots hmm. and, and doing it in order. So in case something cool happens or we do something neat or whatever, now we can continue on with it. Right. And so everything will build to everything else. Right. And so it was just kind of like just steady as she goes. Right. Just boom, boom, boom. If I'm, and as I'm doing it, if I'm going to get an idea for something like a, maybe a section that's yeah. like three, three days from now, well, now because I'm little by little, I'm, I'm just working to get to the house. That's all mm-hmm. I'm doing. I'm just trying to get across this whole giant lot mm-hmm. and get Brad in the house. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, as I'm heading towards the house and as I'm heading there, I'm, I'm thinking about stuff coming up and now any equipment I might need for a special shot mm-hmm. or anything I need to, okay, I need to get this big fucking rusty pickup truck out of the way. So we need to do something else. Or I need the, the crane pointed that way mm-hmm. and I need to point it that way all fucking day. Mm-hmm. So I got to do yeah, yeah, but all those things I would need to do that either that I'm that either new ideas are coming to me or yeah. things I want to manipulate. Because I'm working that way, I, I get you. Then, right. we, then we're in the house. And then mm-hmm. everything is about in the house. We didn't shoot that on a stage. That was there. That you know, mm-hmm. and so and then now I gotta get him out of the house and back to the car. And so everything was just about, you know, uh uh just following you know, just literally narratively and cinematically moving Brad through there. Right. This is probably why it was so long, actually, if you think about it, you know, because it just held. Yeah. It just helped. Yeah. Like the, the longer it was, the scarier it seemed. Right. But I kind of believe that about suspense. I think, uh, you know, that's, I mean, that was the, the trick I learned on Inglorious Bastards with the, the basement scene. I was like, wow, this seems, this is crazy long, but it seems like it's working, you know? And then if it 
if it is working, well, then the longer it is, the more suspenseful it will be. Well, I mean, I think any, anybody that's in here watching this film that's been trained by seeing something that you've done before would expect that, if they were to try to get ahead of you, would expect mm -hmm. that to end with Dakota Fanning pulling a gun, some kind of gunfire, perhaps, if you sort of try to predict it. And what's so beautiful about it is that it ends up with these two guys desperately trying to reconnect on that bed. Yeah. And, of course, it does take a turn with the fella mm -hmm. who gets the kicked out of him in a Yeah, but even like that, I think something. the Manson family's not even presented the, you know, they're, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty creepy, but a lot of their creepiness is what we're bringing to the party. I mean, they actually show that they kind of take care of, they take care of George. Everything they say is exactly the truth. Yeah. He is taking a nap. He's absolutely fine. All right. What's your fucking problem? You care that she's going down on him? What do you care? Get out of here. <laughs> I actually had a, a scene where they were talking and he goes, so, uh, uh, because uh, 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 he, he, he makes him he makes him crack about uh, uh, her having sex with him and she goes what do you care if I have sex with him were you his friend yeah. <laughs> that's good <laughs> he goes yeah you know you have a point I'll get out of here <laughs> um, so you're working with like an Andy McLaughlin type budget on this one then I mean, that's a Kurt Russell joke from, yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. so did anybody catch that the Andy McLaughlin yeah. joke um I think that's my favorite moment in the movie, the one that I've been doing over and over again. I, I, I like fiddle with my sunglasses, and then I just say, uh, I don't dig them, and I don't dig the vibe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it, some kind of beef between you guys? He killed his fucking wife. <laughs> um, can, yeah. you, can, can you give a particular shout-out to Rebecca Gayhart as the wife? Who yeah, is she's so terrific, yeah. Fantastic! Yeah, she's really wonderful. <laughs> um, in a in a movie with like a billion great performances, yeah. it's, I, I actually needed a couple of people that you can just have just like you know ten seconds and okay, you get a you you uh, you get a sense of the, you get a sense of their character, you get a sense of their marriage, you get a sense of everything. A, a, <laughs> just I mean, a, a brief. Flash. I think you do that every step of the way. Everybody you've got in this cast, um, yeah. yeah Um, that, so getting to the heavy hitters, um, in that with Brad and Leo and Margot, um, I mean, that was yours to fuck up as well, because yeah, yeah. that is just the dream scenario of the three of them together. Um, let's talk about Brad first, because to me, there's something, whatever it is in terms of time and where he is in his career and this part, whatever the fuck it is, it's just magical seeing him on screen. He's so soulful, um, I, right? I mean... Uh, he's great. <laughs> you I mean, like, I I mean, like mouth so like saliva, like drooling out of your mouth watching what he was giving you. It must have just been like, how the fuck did I end up well, here? Brad, no, is, well, Brad, more than anybody else I've ever shot, Brad has this aspect that when you look through the viewfinder at him, you feel like you're sitting at the Cinerama Dome watching the movie, all right? And like right. you're not on a set or... Fairfax and cars are driving by you. You feel like you're in a movie theater right. as you're looking at, at him and the, the viewfinder because uh, it just feels you know feels like a movie. Yeah, <laughs> when you see him in a, in a good movie. Yeah. Um, I was an interesting thing I was thinking about it this week. It's, it's actually it's fun when your movie's playing in the theater. It's been like this fourth weekend, and so it's like uh, people talking about it. So I'm like been thinking about it, and I've been watching it with different audiences, and kind of been thinking, been listening, hearing people talk about it. So it's made me think about stuff, and maybe and it's. Um, interesting thing that's made me turn my opinion on the character a little bit, Cliff, is 
me and Brad, we actually, I actually remember bringing up to Brad, I go, look, I think he would be a fantastic Cliff, but, but, I think you're too handsome for Cliff. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't see Cliff that handsome. I mean, if he was that handsome, why isn't he an actor? I mean, I don't know. And, 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 and Brad was, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You know, <laughs> you know, not him saying that, talking good about himself, but just understanding yeah. the arc of a character. He knows what fucking stunt guys look like, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, and I go, yeah, I mean, I want to just put a big fucking like scar right across your face, but I can't do that because I've done that already. Uh, he goes, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I know, I know. I do it too. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> you can fuck up my body. And I'm like, yeah, well, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. Don't worry about that, you know. Now, I can't imagine Cliff not being like the most handsome guy in Hollywood. I mean, it's right. like such a part of his character. It's such a part of who he is. It's such a part of this kind of Zen quality that he has. It's just who he is. The fact that like every girl who sees him, like, you know, he flirts with and she flirts back, mm -hmm. you know, like Bogart in the big sleep. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, I mean, that is a kind of who he is. He should be the most handsome guy on a set mm -hmm. and he still can't get fucking work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it all makes perfect sense to me. I mean, um, and um, no, but it's really interesting. No. no, but he's he's but through sheer force of his will and his personality and his performance and his character, I have changed my mind on that. I mean, I can't even imagine the guy who said that stuff before. No, no, and, and that guy was right, but right. he was wrong. Yeah, because I hadn't seen that. Yeah, <laughs> um, Leo, um, who is like consistently when he decides to be the, the fucking funniest actor in Hollywood, you know? He's just, you know, right? When he, when he like flips that switch. Yeah. But I mean, but I mean, but truly what's so funny about him is he's not playing it funny. <laughs> he's right. playing it so fucking serious. Absolutely. And that's what's so ridiculous. Yeah, no, his full commitment to that. Yeah. Sexy Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just just briefly before we get to Margot, talk about my favorite performance in 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 the movie is Nicholas. What's his, 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 oh, and, uh, Nicholas Hammond. Yeah. Nicholas Hammond mm -hmm. as Sam Wanamaker. Yeah. The director who comes to him and says, "I don't want fucking Rick Dalton." Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> I want you to see Caleb. Exactly. <laughs> and then Leo's fantastic moment. He says, "We're gonna do something about your hair." Whoa, something yeah, whoa, about whoa, my whoa, hair. Whoa. Yeah, what? Whoa, whoa. Um, <laughs> go to, it's like going to Ed Burns. All right, okay, we're gonna do something about your hair. Whoa, hair. That's fucking what I do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why you brought me in here. Yeah, my, right, Ed exactly. <laughs> um, uh. For those of you that don't know, he was um, in The Sound of Music. Yeah, he's one of the kids in The Sound of Music. He's one of the kids in uh, um, Lord of the Flies. He actually is the first, he's the star of the um, of the Spider-Man uh, live-action TV show from the 70s. Mm -hmm. Any of you Skyjack fans out there? He's on the plane in Skyjack. <laughs> um, that's, that, that's a, Skyjack. That is a terrific scene. And let's talk about Margot and how you, um, you got so lucky because she, um, she's just... Amazing. I mean, she's always been amazing. Well, yeah, it's one of those weird things where it's like I've, I've had some thoughts in my head about like because it's been in my mind for such a long time. It was like, um, not did I not did I do right? Did I do wrong? Nothing like that. But it more like, huh? Now, if I had just barreled down and did this six years ago, mm -hmm. what would that have been like? 
as far as like the reaction or how people would have looked at it. And if I did it three years ago, what would that have been like? If I, as a, and they're doing it now, what that would be like. And that's actually kind of an interesting little thought game, you know, uh, uh, to play, especially when you're talking about a period piece, <laughs> because, well, this period ain't going anywhere, you know, so it's just kind of just interesting. But the thing that makes it all always kind of just kind of collapse a little bit of like, no, 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 this is definitely the right time is because I can't imagine any other time I would have had Margot, you know, because, you know, it's just, you know, just where it was just so easy to do it with her. And she would, you know, she was terrific and, she, uh, and I, I just... I just can't imagine the movie without Margot. So did you have this, so you've had this rummaging around in your mind or were you just playing that game of imagining if you'd had it six or seven years ago? How, well, no, no, I've been working had... on it for about six years. I think I started working on it little by little. I mean, little by little, really, but right. like sometime after Death Proof. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I've been working on it since after Death Proof. I remember, I think it was like, I think the first, I, I wrote a couple, I wrote a couple, I, I wrote it, I wrote a couple chapters as a novel. It was the first breaking ice on it. I remember doing that at the Austin Hotel and uh, uh, right after, during Death Proof times. So right, I remember that. Right. I remember a couple of years ago, no, it must have been about six or seven years ago, you told me you had a Paul Revere and the Raiders, a movie that you're going to use some Paul Revere music. Yeah, that's one, yeah, That yeah. must be it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so it's just, yeah, it, it's, yeah, so, uh, uh, she just, she's such a force of nature, she's such a force of nature on her own, and she's mm -hmm. such a force of, of just light and goodwill on her own, Margot, she, you know, just shooting with her is just so much fun, and, yeah. and, um, I mean, literally, it just reminds me of me being on Reservoir Dogs shooting with her, because she's just so happy to be there, and so excited about everything, and, 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 and I am always excited about everything, but I'm even more excited when she's around. I bet. <laughs> well, I really liked your choice that you made of, you know, here you have this film where, it, Leo's on the screen or on the TV as, you know, uh, it's Leo. But I loved that you used Sharon Tate, mm -hmm. you know, to you see Margot Ro Robbie, Robbie watching Sharon Tate. Well, that was always my plan, but the thing about it is movie. with Margot, I knew I would be able to pull it off. Well, it's just so moving, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, that's how I thought. You know, well, I mean, one of the, actually, one of my favorite, literally, one of my favorite things in the whole movie is I love, uh, I actually just, I can now honestly say, along with one other movie, I won't say watch. All right, uh, I can now honestly say that the movie that I have seen that I don't like the most is The Wrecking Crew. <laughs> I, it's a really bad comedy, but mm -hmm. she's really good in it. And right. I, it, just, it was on TV the other day, and I watched it for about a good 40 minutes just to watch Sharon in it. And, uh, um, and one of the things that makes me so tickled is uh, one we get to see her in it. We get to see how how you know she's funny and then uh, uh, we get we get to see her little her her special spark. But one of the things I love is that normally uh, when she does her little pratfall and she falls mm -hmm. in the lobby, mm -hmm. she gets a laugh. Mm -hmm. You know, in our theater, the audience laughs in our theater, and I always, I'm always, I'm always. It's actually the laugh that I'm looking forward to the most. I always, I'm saying, is Sharon going to get her, get a laugh in our theater when right. she does a pratfall, and she almost always does. I'm very happy for her. Oh. I mean, we're we're we 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 are like the Rolling Stones says out of time, but just to think that it was 50 years ago on Sunday night, about a week, yeah. a week past when it would have been. Obviously, we would have been living in a very different. Mm -hmm. mood in this city but we but, get you know I mean but I, I have to say one of the things that's been so incredibly gratifying all right about this whole experience uh for these last four weeks and everything is um 
you know, I mean, it's interesting because I tried to not, I tried to not turn Sharon into a Quentin Tarantino character. All right. Um, and if I, yeah, I, I, you know, Rick is a Quentin Tarantino character. Cliff is a Quentin Tarantino character. Yeah. And even like my other the queen is a bit of a Quentin character, but, um, in a way I didn't want Sharon to be a character. I wanted her to be the person that she is. Now it's only my interpretation of the person from what I've learned, learned about it. And I'm definitely you know, leaning in to all the, you know, the, uh, the bright and the light stuff, but that really seems to be who she is. Um, if there's other aspects of her out there, I didn't find it. Um, but the thing is, was about her being not a character, the real person. And she was almost supposed to represent normalcy. Mm-hmm. in the thing. She doesn't have any plot to do. Mm-hmm. We're just kind of watching her live her life because that's kind of what was robbed from her mm-hmm. was living her life. And the fact that uh, she's a person consigned to history for the most part defined completely and utterly by her tragic death. Yeah. And in these last four weeks, People have watched Margot play this character and they've watched, I just called her a character, watched her play this person and they saw that she was more than that and she was a lovely person and they get a sense of her spirit and they get a sense of her life and you actually watch her doing her things that people do in a life, you know, running errands, driving the car, just doing just life stuff. All right. Uh, and you even got to see Sharon and you know, the real Sharon. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, juxtaposed into that and everything. And now I actually think people will think about her differently mm-hmm. than, the, than, they, than they thought before. It's not the beginning and end all of Sharon. All right. Uh, there's still more to learn about her and everything. But as far as just, I think, saving her, saving her from her tombstone. The movie has kind of done that to some, to, to, to a small degree, but I think a significant degree. Let's end it there. Thank you very much, everybody. Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.